Good morning. So um, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 150. We're going to be in Psalm 150 this morning. Uh, we're continuing, uh, actually we're concluding our series, Surrender, um, and we'll get to that in a moment. I just want to let you know where we're going from here uh, for the rest of the summer. Uh, we're excited that this is the last week of our, of our series, Surrender, uh, and then for the month of August, uh, we're going to um, kind of echo what we did last year. Uh, we, we, last year, we started this August series called The Hope That Is In You, and it's a response to the, the, the Scripture's call that we always be ready to give an account for the hope that is within us. Um, and since I get to talk all the time, uh, what we thought was, well, why don't we have um, individuals who serve in and through the life of our body, serve as leaders, um, these are people who serve in various different capacities, and maybe folks that we don't necessarily know as much about. Maybe these are folks that are, that are newer to the life of our community, and, or maybe the, these are folks that, because you're newer to the life of our community, you haven't gotten a chance to get to know them as well. So what we're doing is we're going to be inviting some of, well, some of you to come and, uh, and share the, about this testimony of the hope that is within you. So next week, we're actually going to hear uh, a guest uh, preacher, a guest uh, speaker that was here earlier in the year. My friend T.D. Allen is going to be here. He's a great guy, and I'm looking forward to you all hearing his story. It's a, it's a powerful one. Um, we're going to hear from Katie Graves Abey. Uh, I'm excited to hear about what, uh, her work and, and her story. We're going to hear from Ben Nichols, uh, and he's going to talk to us a little about his uh, military career. We're going to hear from Carissa Schreck. Um, and then I'm going to close the series um, Labor Day weekend with kind of a story of new hope and kind of do some vision casting uh, for what we hope to uh, kind of be about, some of the things we hope to be about over the next ministry season. So with that, uh, we do have one more uh, series, one more sermon in our uh, Surrender series. This, this Surrender series is a series that seeks to remind us that our call as Christians is to surrender all to the only one worthy of surrender. Except no substitutes. And if you're just joining us, I'll I'll catch you up. Earlier in the year, we had a brief three-week first part to the series where we looked at the overarching topics of power, sex, and money. These are forest-level topics. But many have argued that they constitute three of the most general areas of focus for anyone seeking to reorient their lives around something other than themselves. How do we honestly view the control we have on others? Please, if you, if you get a chance, go back and revisit the sermon on power that our guest speaker Derek Miller gave on December 30th, uh, 2018. It was one of the better sermons I think has ever been preached at New Hope. And what would it look like if we sought surrender in the area of sex and desire? How would surrendering our sexuality to God affect the various uh, other areas of our life? The same with money. And then after a break, we returned to the topic of surrender a few weeks ago with some more focused topics. We talked about fear. We talked about allegiance. We talked about possessions and point of view and talents, a wide range of topics, all with the central premise that these things are best oriented around God's kingdom rather than selfish ambition or desire. 
So finally today, we're going to close the series at the Lord's table here as we celebrate the sacrament of communion together. But before we do that, I want to offer some words on another kind of big picture, forest level topic. And this is just one of those things that if we were to get this right, so many other things would would just kind of fall into place. So if you haven't turned already, turn with me to Psalm 150. This is the last psalm in the book of Psalms. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him, praise him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the trumpet sound. Praise Him with the lute and the harp. Praise Him with tambourine and, and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud, clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Clearly, the topic of this psalm is worship, specifically worship to the Lord. So for the past few months, I've been privileged to lead a Bible study for the residents of the Parkview at Catonsville uh, Senior Living Apartment Building, uh, which is not far from here. These residents, uh, some of whom are in their late 90s, come consistently down to their community room every Thursday for prayer and study God's Word for an hour and a half. And I, I heard that the person who had been doing the study for years was unable to continue doing so, so I volunteered, and I gotta say, it's become a highlight from my work week. The individuals who come to this study, they are fiercely devoted to their faith, and I'm grateful for the things that I get to learn from them. This past Thursday, after spending some time, the first thing we do is we spend some time kind of lamenting the week's news and, and praying for peace in our beloved city. And I asked them, I said, open the book of Psalms um, and just tell me what you see. You see, we were about to look at Psalm 150. So I said, just do me a favor, and you guys could do this right now. Just think about the sort of things, think about Psalms 1 through 149. What sort of things fill those pages? And for about 15 minutes, We spoke about the theology that's in the Psalms. We spoke about the majestic ways that they describe the holiness of Almighty God and recounted His mighty deeds in the life of Israel and in the life of the world. We talked about how the Psalms speak repeatedly again and again and again about God's creation of the sky and the ocean and mountains and hills and rivers and trees and and rocks and birds and wildlife and fruit and livestock. Surely the Psalms paints the picture of of a God that is an almighty creator. He, He is creativity himself. Praise God for his wonderful creation. And I said, well, you know, is the Psalms all positive? And they kind of like, you know, were, well, no. And we talked a little bit about how many of the Psalms take a tone of lament. They take a tone of confession, and they cry out to God who sometimes seems very far away. Turn back with me for a moment to Psalm 13. 
How long, O Lord? Psalm 113. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Gosh. I mean, there are some lines in there that might not just be appropriate for church. My enemies are at my doorstep, God. How long must I wait for you to act? You see, the Bible makes a big distinction between complaining and lamenting. See, when we complain, we're surrendering ourselves like to our weakness. To complain is a selfish act that makes us the center of the world, but a lament, a lament is a confession of pain. It's, it's truth an acknowledgement that all is not right in the world and that only God can truly deliver us from this dark hour. See, this psalm, it begins with this, how long, O Lord, but then it ends. Still, I have trusted in your steadfast love, not mine. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation, not my cunning. I will sing to the Lord, not something else that I have put on the throne, because He has dealt bountifully with me. He gives me abundant life. He offers me new new creation, and nothing else does. The Psalms make it clear that new true salvation is of the Lord. He defines salvation. He's not only the almighty creator, He is the almighty redeemer. But page after page after page of 149 psalms lead us to this final one. And I love the question uh, that we might be wrestling with, um, with, with all that came before. You kind of soak in everything that the psalms has to say. And we say, well, what do we do now? How do we make sense of all of this that God is, and, and of course, all that we fail to be, and, and all that we hope that He will do, and, and all of the pain in this present moment. How do, I, how do I respond honestly to this sort of truth? And I love the, the answer that Psalm 150 gives us. The answer to all of that, the answer to all of the accumulation of all of that stuff is worship. Give praise to God. The word praise is the Hebrew word hallel. And putting it together with praise the Lord's where we get the term hallelujah. Hallel can be translated to shine. Like, oh, shine FM, I get it. Anyway, to be made brilliant and clear. This is why the study of Scripture 
And the study of theology is so important to the work of worship. We want to make sure that we're communicating the attributes of God clearly for his people so that the response is worshipful. I quoted N.T. Wright in your bulletin. He talks about this truth that if, if we were to glimpse the reality of God, if we were to truly glimpse it, our natural response would be to worship because worship is about declaring who God is and in doing so, we also declare who we are in Him. For, for centuries, humankind has worshipped things that they see as greater than themselves or things that seem to be far more powerful than themselves. And the, In the ancient world, when humans moved from a, a hunter-gatherer society to an agricultural one, it, it would be understanding that the things that would seem all-powerful were the things of the natural world, which literally kind of hold their life in place. So the sun, rain, wild animals, the sky, the stars, the earth, air, fire, water. We know that ancient civilizations worshipped such things because it was easy to see the elemental forces of this world having dominance over their life in a very real and practical way. If it doesn't rain, the crops don't grow, and that means you might not eat and your children might die. When the spring sun thaws out the winter chill and vegetation comes to life and things start getting green, it's a cause for celebration. Of course, some civilizations personified and then deified these natural forces to the point that they became gods. Like the fickle nature of the weather, though, these gods often seemed far too wrapped up in their own drama to offer anything but an impersonal connection with the world below. This is why the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, is so important to the story of all things. The Old Testament tells the story of the one true God, the Lord of all creation, the Lord of all of those things that we mentioned before, who moves his spirit through the forces of this world and is sovereign over it all. Will everything always go your way? No. But you can trust that he remains faithful to repair the world that has been broken by sin and death and evil. When we worship, when we worship the true God, the true one God, Yahweh, we are making the ultimate surrender of all of this. We're making the, the ultimate surrender that all of this is under his dominion. In that light, worship makes us more human because we are acknowledging the true makeup of this world. When we worship something, we give it power over us. Therefore, when we worship something, we begin to become more and more like the thing we are worshiping. If it's our desire to worship God in spirit and in truth, our praise is oriented around God and His kingdom, then we are going to slowly turn from selfishness and toward, turn towards Him and surrender all to the One who holds all things together. The problem is, that when we worship something else, and we are so very good at worshiping other things, we place it at the center 
of our worship and we place it on the throne. We treat things that are definitely not God as God. And then we begin to orient our choices around those things instead of God. The idols, the idols of sex, power, money, and all the rest. And we become more and more like those things. We start making choices based around those things rather than God's holiness. I've tasted power, therefore I want more of it. And that means I have to make others have less of it. I've defined my sexuality solely on what gives me pleasure, so I begin to objectify or even harm others in order to fulfill selfish desires regardless of who gets hurt. Or or maybe I've placed money on the throne and used the accumulation of money as a thing to place a hedge around my life in order to keep others out. But instead... When I place the only one worthy of being on the throne, on the throne, I then begin to see that power, sex, and money were never the enemies. They just weren't God. To surrender all to God cannot mean that we run from power, sex, and money as if they are sinful in and of themselves. We can no more escape the presence of power, sex, and money in our day any more than the ancients, or us for that matter, could escape the sun. The question is, are you ready to live a life of surrender? Are you ready to live a life of surrender to the only one who could show you the proper place of sex, power, money, fear, possessions, allegiance, anything that you want to put on that throne? I believe that when we worship God, we are training ourselves. We are training each other to do that very thing. Now, all that might sound great, but we still have to talk about what worship exactly is. And after reading Psalm 150, you might desire to caution others against assuming that worship equals music and that it happens just on Sunday. And you'd be right to do so. The first principle of worship is that God desires that our entire lives be lived to his glory. Those in the Reformed tradition, which New Hope is proudly a part of, often use the phrase sola deo gloria, meaning glory to God alone. So when the Sunday morning music team at New Hope begins to put together details for a service, their prayer, our prayer, should be sola della gloria. When I type words into my computer and follow God's lead into the development of a sermon, my prayer at every step along the way should be sola deo gloria. When a person decides to make dinner for their family and they pay attention to details in order that their family can gather together and enjoy time together and you pour into each other and you discuss the day and you laugh together, our family prayer can be sola Deo Gloria. You see, we're called to sola Deo Gloria on the job site and in the office. We are called to sola Deo Gloria in the bedroom and in our bank account. Don't laugh. 
If we have truly surrendered our lives to God, then that means that there is no corner of our life that He does not desire to shine His light on and through, including your money, including your sexuality, including your job. If you are a Christian, then that means that you are called to live your whole life and worship to God. Romans 12 Paul puts it this way. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's all worship. All of it. The question is, who or what are you worshiping? Are you worshiping God or are you worshiping not God? Hopefully, we plant that first troop deep. Not only can we worship outside the walls of the church building, we are supposed to worship outside the walls of the church building. Christian, if you wouldn't consider the work that you do with your family or at your job or at your school worship, then I am afraid that you may be missing something. So that's first. It's all worship. That being said, we have to do business with the fact that the Psalms, and clearly Psalm 150, clearly assumes that worship can and should be musical, and that there is something of tradition that is important. Praise the Lord, praise God in His sanctuary, praise Him in His mighty heavens, praise Him for His mighty deeds, praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Did you notice that this psalm isn't addressed to God? It may be said to God's glory, it might be said sola deo gloria, but it's addressed not to God. It may be instructing worship to God, but it isn't addressed to Him directly at its heart. This psalm, this psalm is an ancient poem instructing God's people on the manner in which praise is to be given. And it says that we are to praise Him in His sanctuary. There is something about worship that is best expressed within a gathering of God's people. Can and should you worship God alone and quiet? Absolutely. There is no person who wouldn't be served by 15 minutes a day alone in a chair in silent praise to God through Scripture and prayer. But, but Hebrews 10 tells us, tells us this. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. I think, in a sense, that's what our worship team, that's what music, that's what sermon, um, uh, that's what announcements, that's what anything we do on Sunday mornings is trying to do. It's stirring up one another to love and good works. And we're not supposed to, as Hebrews said, not neglect the meeting together, as is the habit of son, but, but, but instead encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the, the day of the Lord's return. What's this saying? It's saying that this season will come to a close, either because of the Lord's return or because of your own death. Regardless, hold fast to the confession of hope and do not neglect the assembly of the church. Do not, do not ne- neglect the fact that you have an important 
role to play in the life of God's people, in the life of God's family, as we encourage one another and stir up one another. One of the most powerful ways we can stir up one another and encourage one another is through music. I believe that music is a powerful, a bonding agent that God uses to keep his church together. I mean, sure, we all have musical, different musical styles and different tastes, but for thousands of years, the church has used music to help draw God's people together. I mean, you could spend five minutes looking at how Christians speak to one another on Twitter, and you'll see how divided the church is. Thousands of different denominations and thousands of different faith traditions, thousands of different, different points of view and ways of viewing eternal things. Yet gather 20,000, 30,000, a million people in one place and play Amazing Grace or How Great Thou Art and listen to how together we can be. I love how we're called to various shades of worship music as well it says praise and with the trumpet sound and when you think of a trumpet you think of something something majestic think of maybe a coronation something grand with a fanfare god is the king of kings he deserves our allegiance and worship to his holy name but but also praise him with the lute and the harp praise him in a peaceful place maybe a place of meditation where things are quiet still. Uh, I'm reminded of a legend from a little over 50 years ago, if a legend can be from 50 years ago, when this, uh, this session musician, this guy who was called in to, to play for, for other like popular level bands and things like that, this, this, this session musician named Jimmy Page had this idea for a rock and roll band that, that fused like loud electric blues with shades of like acoustic rock. And legend has it that some felt that a band like this would go over like a lead balloon. So Page decided to name his band Led Zeppelin. Friends, praise stands to reason that the worship of the church of Jesus Christ would be of a variety, would be of various different shades. And there are times when worship is loud and in your face and it begs you to get up and clap and sometimes there's worship that is calling you to be quiet and calling you to be silent, maybe calling you to get on your knees and pray to him. Regardless though, the psalmist says that we're to praise him with the tambourine and dance. And the thought is that worship should affect your entire body, not just your voice, not just your hands, but there are times when the most faithful thing that you can do, regardless of whether it's a loud moment in worship or a soft moment in worship, there are things that you can do in that moment of worship to move your body and, in, and have it involved in worship in a way that is truly praise to the Lord. And you might say, well, Joe, that's, that's just not my worship style. I get it. But even if you're singing a hymn with an organ, I think that worship music should still have an effect on your whole body. If you, if you look back, I know it says this in the, in the Methodist hymnal, 
Um, but there's, there's other uh, instruction manuals on, on worship throughout the centuries that the church communities of various different traditions have used. And, and you read like kind of like rules of, 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 of the church's worship and things like that. It'll often, it'll often say things to the effect of um, when you worship, don't kind of mumble into your prayer book. Or, or don't kind of like have your head down or maybe slump into the, the pew. No, when you worship, regardless of the style of worship, be attentive. Sing out to the Lord. Because not only is there something to be said with the, um, the physicality of worship, there's also something to be said about the worship that we have and how it instructs others. Specifically, how it instructs children. What does it mean for a parent? And you notice how we have uh, the kids in service during the first half hour, and we actually, during our musical worship section of our, of our service, we actually have our kids. And of course, some of the kids, you know, they might not be all that um, uh, involved, or maybe they might not be all kind of involved in the moment, but they do see you. They do see what you're doing with your body. They see you when you're closing your eyes. They see you when you're putting, going down on your knees in prayer to God. They see you when you fold your hands. They see you when you respond to worship. And again and again and again, they say that faith is caught, not taught. And I see my dad doing this over and over and again, week after week after week. I see my parents making the decision that worship on Sunday morning, that coming to a worship space and worshiping God is a non-negotiable part of my week. When a child sees that, and then he responds, when he or she responds by by leaving the home, how much more likely is it that they're going to make that a part of their life? Lots we could say about worship, but we're out of time. But the last thing I do want to say is that worship, in and of itself, the word worship, it, it means that God is worthy. It, it is, he is worth our worship. Why? Why is he worthy of worship? We, we, we learn that God is our creator, and then we also learn that he is our redeemer. And the uh, we don't have time to turn there, but um, in the end, uh, in, in the end of the Bible, there's this vision, apocalyptic vision that's called uh, Revelation, and and John is given this vision of the eternal throne, and he hears this refrain: "Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power." And wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Uh, worthy to him who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Why, Why is God worthy? God is worthy because of his sacrifice. Scripture makes it very, um, it, it ties together not only that God is powerful, but also that he came to serve his people. When we think about that kind of sacrifice and we think about what he's done to our life and the power that he gives us to be servants to this world, oh, that's the kind of God I want to worship. That's something that's worthy of my worship to Jesus Christ on the throne. And I think that one of the most powerful ways, one of the most important ways that we worship as a church community is through the sacraments. Last week we worshipped, um, we witnessed, and we worshipped, uh, the baptism 
of three individuals who made the decision to publicly proclaim their faith in Jesus Christ. If baptism is something that you'd be interested in, I'd invite you to come to me and we can discuss that. But the other worship-saturated sacrament that New Hope is involved in is communion, the Eucharist, the Mass, the Lord's Supper. And, And when we come to this table, we are gathering around the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are proclaiming to each other that all fall short of the glory of God. And through his sacrifice on the cross and new life offered through his resurrection, we are a new creation in him. The gathering at the Lord's table is most definitely worship. And when we eat this bread and we drink this cup, uh, we, the church, are declaring that he alone is worthy of all praise, worthy of 100% of our surrender. Our table at New Hope is open to all that call upon the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And before we partake together, I'll ask you to come up and then take it back to your seat, and we'll uh, we'll partake together. Uh, But before we do that, I'd invite you to please stand and read, as churches throughout the centuries have done, the reading of the Nicene Creed. 